Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 8, 22 through 33. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And when he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of God to us. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Hey, my name is Andrew. I actually am one of the pastors here. So good to be with you. If we haven't had a chance to meet and there's a ton of new faces since I've been gone, I'd love to have the chance to meet you after service. Uh, man, the, I have been on sabbatical for the last three months. And if you don't know what that is, that's a gift that uh, the church has given me. And it's actually something that we give all of our pastors seven years into ministry. So every seven years, we require them to take some time away just to remember what it's like to love Jesus without the pressures and weight of ministry and to reconnect with your family. And one of the things that I've asked you guys to do while I was gone was just to pray that that would happen, to pray that I'd be able to, in new ways, encounter God's love, to enjoy my wife and my kids. And I can't tell you all the fun that we had. I mean, we, there are multiple times where I was laying on the floor with my kids without anything to do, nothing going on, just slow and, and enjoying my family and just feeling the delight, like this is something that the church gave me to do. So thank you so much for that. Uh, my kids over and over like, how cool is it that our church loves us so much, you know, that they did this. And, and one of my goals is that my kids actually grow up to love the church. And I grew up in a pastor's family. I know how hard that can be because the church is a mixed bag, right? We're, we're, we can hurt you really well and we can do a lot of good. And, uh, and so my prayer for my kids is that they grow up and love the church. And this was one of the evidences of like, hey, look, the church values my dad and they value my family. So that's a big deal to me. It means a lot. I missed you guys like crazy. And it was so fun for me to go back and listen to the sermons that were preached. Man, didn't those guys do an incredible job? Like, it was great. Way, way better than what you're about to hear me do in a minute, because I haven't preached in 15 weeks. So Great job, and I just, I, I want to honor the South team and our staff, our pastoral team. Man, all of those guys, they just did an amazing job of caring for you guys, and 
I'm just really proud of how our team led while I was out, but it's, it's really good to be back. So let's take a second, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Mark chapter 8. Father, what we did a minute ago where we stood underneath the reading of your word, I pray that that would happen for the rest of this moment, that we would actually be underneath your word. And, and Father, I pray that where there's resistance in my own heart to your teaching, where there's things that we need to have changed in us or stuff that we believe that we shouldn't, we pray that you would adjust us. God, if it's behaviors that we do that you want to call us out on, you are the Christ. And we invite you to come and do that. We invite you to speak to us plainly today, however we need to be spoken to. And I don't know all the people in the room. I don't know what they're carrying today, the unique burdens that they have. I don't know what they think about you or where they're at, but whatever it is, whether there's doubts or whether there's questions or whether there's burdens or needs, would you meet with us today? You're a loving father. You're not turned off by our need. You're not even turned off by how much of a mess we are. You're actually drawn to us and you love us. And I pray that that would get experienced today through the preaching of your words. So come and move. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we reach a turning point in the gospel of Mark. If you were not with us 22 weeks ago when we kicked off the series on, on the book of Mark, uh, one of the things that we said early on was that you could really divide this book straight in half. It's pretty bizarre. Think of it like this. If, if Mark was a movie, then this series, this movie series, would have two parts to it, right? You'd have a part one that really is chapters one through eight, and the main theme of this first section is the king is here and his name is Jesus. So while you're reading up to this point, kind of the main theme that's being developed is, hey, this king, this Messiah, this Christ is here. He's arrived and his name is Jesus. That's why you see Jesus healing people who are sick and casting out demons and teaching with authority and doing all of these miraculous deeds because he's trying to basically highlight and show his disciples and show the people, hey, I'm the Messiah. All those promises in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, that's who I am. I'm here and I'm doing the thing. So this is the whole first part of Mark. It's one through eight. The king is here and his name is Jesus. But then there's this turning point in chapter 9, and it really goes chapter 9 through 16. And this theme is, yes, the king is here, but he's not what you think. So yeah, Jesus is the king, but what you might mean by the phrase, Jesus is the king or he's the Christ, might be very different than how Jesus himself is envisioning his own ministry and what he's doing. So this is a really bizarre way that Mark splits up the book, but it's helpful. And what's, what's so fun as I jump back in today is that we're actually in that hinge point of the book of Mark. We're actually crossing over from part one to part two. And the way that John Mark, the author of this gospel, does it is bizarre and weird. He uses what I think is one of the strangest stories in all the New Testament, certainly one of the strangest stories in the gospel as the hinge point between part one and part two. So let's jump in and look at it. Verse 22, here's what it says. And they came to Bethsaida. Remember, the disciples have been going to and fro across the Sea of Galilee. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. It's interesting. Jesus isn't wanting to be in the village when he does this healing. He wants to actually get away from people. It's almost like he still wants to be kept a secret, who he is and why he came. It's interesting. So he brings the blind man out of the village. And 
when he had spit on his eyes, yeah, you read that right, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, "Uh, I see people, but they look like trees walking. In other words, yeah, I can see, but not clearly. It's really blurry. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And look at this phrase, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So at first glance, at first reading, this is a story about healing, but it's a weird one. Like it's weird because Jesus spits on his eyes. And if that's weird to you now, like it was probably still weird then. And, and, and I read like tons of commentaries of like, why did this happen? And all the weird answers that they give, they just, they, I don't think it's like, we don't really know. It's just very strange. Jesus is like, open up your eyes, you know, and just right in his eyeball. And that's weird. And then what's even more strange is this is the only healing in the New Testament that we have where Jesus doesn't just say, be healed or get up and walk, but he asks a question. Hey, do you see anything? That's interesting. And then in addition to that, what he does is also strange because the man is healed, but he's not fully healed. Like he can see, but he's not going to pass an eye exam. Things are still blurry. So Jesus has to again lay his hands on this man's eyes, and the man is eventually fully healed. It's the only healing in the New Testament that happens gradually, not all at once. Bang, it's done. It's gradual. How strange is that? Well, at first glance, this is a story about healing. And I just want to say on the side that many of you know, after our gatherings, what we do is our gatherings come to a close every Sunday. We actually have a a team of people up here to do ministry. And this is for those of you who you've got stuff going on in your life or a major job interview coming up, or maybe you've been given a diagnosis from a doctor that's scary and you need prayer. And what we do is we often lay our hands on you and we pray for you. And it's nothing powerful or special about us. It's God, the spirit through his church. And often what we see happening even today is people getting healed of things like headaches or back problems, or even something as serious as stomach cancer. Some of you were here when we prayed over Reuben Ozuna and he was healed of stomach cancer. You remember you were part of that group of people praying. What's fascinating though, is sometimes we'll pray for people and we'll be like, hey, do you feel better? Do you feel like noticeably better? And the answer is like, "Ah, a little bit, not much. And then maybe a day or two or a few days goes by and we'll get a text like, I'm totally fine. Everything, it's like, I don't know why God did that. I don't know why it was gradual. I don't know why it happened over time, but it did. And then there are times where we pray for people and God doesn't seem to heal the person for for his own purposes. He doesn't seem to heal the person. And here's why I say this, just as an aside, if you're here today and you've got a sickness or you've got something physically going on and it's like, well, I've already prayed about that. Can I just invite you to not just assume that because you've prayed once that it's like a one and done thing. Maybe, even like Jesus in the story, we need to actually bring it before Jesus again and pray again, and maybe again, and maybe again. And I would just say, until he makes it radically clear that you should stop praying for healing, let's continue to pray for healing, right? So this is a story about healing. But here's what's interesting. It's not really a story about healing at all. It's actually a story about seeing and seeing clearly. Now, I don't mean to say that this didn't happen. This story did happen. But when you read the Gospel of Mark, this feels out of left field. It's like, whoa, like you were on a roll and you were kind of building and building. And and then all of a sudden, this random story about a blind man who is blind 
and then he goes from being blind to being able to see, but then he goes from being able to see it's still blurry to then over time being able to see clearly. What is the story really about? Well, here's what's interesting. This is brilliant on the part of John Mark, the author. This is a literary move that's absolute genius. He is giving us this story about a blind man who goes from being blind to seeing partially to seeing clearly as a microcosm, if you will, as a lived out parable, if you will, of what Jesus's own disciples are experiencing where they go from being blind to who Jesus is to then being able to see, they recognize Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, but they don't see what that means clearly. And it's only through the loving, patient touch of Jesus that over time they learn to see clearly who he is as the Messiah. In this story alone, there's words for seeing or sight used nine different times in just a matter of like five or six verses. If you go back to chapter 8, 17, what we looked at last week, here's just one thing Jesus says about his disciples. He says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Look at this phrase, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Again in verse 21, and he said to his disciples, do you not yet understand? Friends, up to this point in the story, the disciples have been just like this blind man, unable to see Jesus. But something happens in this text where for the first time their eyes are opened. You are the Christ. They recognize. But as we're gonna quickly see, they don't see clearly. It's blurry. It's Jesus walking around like a tree. And then over time, they begin to see it. It's brilliant. It's almost like John Mark was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote this. Okay, so let's jump in with that framework in mind, and let's look at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, so just like with the blind man, he takes him out of the village to do his healing work on his eyes. He takes his disciples out of where they were from Bethsaida into Caesarea Philippi to do his healing work on their eyes. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? What's, what, what are people saying about me? And they told him, John the Baptist. If you remember, Herod beheaded John the Baptist. So some people are like, oh, we think that John the Baptist was reincarnated and it's Jesus. And he's like back to haunt Herod from, you know, from the dead. And so some people say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. There's Old Testament prophecies about a coming Elijah. If you remember the story of Elijah, he actually never died. He was taken up to heaven. So some people thought that God was going to send Elijah again as like this prophet and this announcer of the coming kingdom of God. So some people are like, yeah, you're Elijah. And then others say that you're one of the prophets. Now, this, these are not bad answers. These are all like complimentary things to say about a person. You're one of the prophets. You're John the Baptist. He was great. Some people say you're Elijah. Word on the street is you're definitely sent of God. You're definitely doing something important. And then Jesus does something profound, verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Friends, these are the two most important questions that you will ever wrestle with in your entire life. Who do people say that Jesus is? And who do you say that he is? Because everybody has to have an answer for the historic Jesus. Who is he? Was he a moral teacher? Was he a political revolutionary? Was he someone that came as a Jewish outcast and was kind of mentally unstable, but did a lot of good things? Who was Jesus really? And even more important to that, who do you say that Jesus is? 
And this is not a question that you can just answer one time and one and done, you're finished. Just because it's like, oh, I settled that in VBS when I was in second grade. We actually need to wrestle again with this question, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, there's something I want to point out to you about this location of where Jesus is having the conversation with his disciples, because there's nothing that's throwaway in the gospel of Mark. He takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Got a artistic rendering here. I did not do this. Uh, that would look like, uh, like chicken scratch if I did it. Here's an artistic rendering of what Caesarea Philippi probably looked like in the time of Jesus. And it was basically rows and rows of temples, right? So there's this Greek uh, god Pan, and they built a temple to Pan. And there was, a, there was a temple to Zeus, and they had a temple. The most recent one that was built was for Julius Caesar, later became known as Caesar Augustus, the most well-known Caesar or emperor over Rome in the history of Rome. So here's what's so fascinating. Jesus is leading his disciples through these rows of temples where there's all these claims about ultimate reality and about these gods and about the way to live and about who's right and all these. There's all these claims out there and Jesus is walking through these rows, rows of temples and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And it's in the middle of this location, as Peter is looking at these claims of ultimate reality and Jesus standing right in front of him, that Peter, for the first time, has his eyes opened. And look at what he says in verse 29 at the end. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He's still keeping it secret and hidden who he is. We'll talk about why that's the case in just a minute. But here's the first thing I want you to see. This is the illumination. This is Peter's I can see moment. They go from being blind to, oh my goodness, you are the Christ. And it's important to remember up to this point in the gospel of Mark, no human has made this connection yet. No human has pieced the puzzles together. Up until this point, the only people, the only characters in the story that have gotten it right about Jesus' true identity are who? The demons. This is the first time that a human being standing in front, it's like he's that blind man and his eyes begin to open and he goes, oh my goodness, you are the Christ. Now, a couple things on the Christ, that phrase. Uh, if you grew up in the church or if you grew up in the Midwest, often we think of Christ as Jesus's last name. Like if he had a business card, it'd be like Mr. Christ, right? It's not his last name, okay? It's not a name at all. It's a title. Others of us often think that it's a title that points to his divinity. Like, oh, that's how we know he's God. Jesus is God in human flesh, but Christ is not at all referencing his divinity, Christ literally means the anointed one. And it's what was said about every king over Israel since there were kings of Israel. They were the anointed ones by God to lead and govern and to rule over the people and to establish peace and to, to bring God's reign on earth. And so there were all of these anointed ones in Israel up to this point. And Old Testament scriptures building and building and building with this theme of the Messiah the Christ, the King, the Anointed One. And by the time Jesus shows up, the theme had been developed so much so that the King or the Christ meant the King to end all kings. Like a type of le a level of ruler that we will need no more kings because we have the perfect Messiah 
coming for us. And specifically for the Apostle Peter, this concept of the Messiah was loaded with Jewish cultural significance. Here's what Peter was thinking. He's looking at this temple to Caesar Augustus where people would literally bow the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. If you remember the very first week of Mark, we showed a coin that was circulating within Roman first century culture. On the back, it has Caesar Augustus's face and it says, Caesar is Lord. He was known as the savior of the world. So imagine all of this background and you're a Jewish person. And you're thinking, yeah, but one day another type of king is gonna come. Not a Caesar, but a Christ, the the anointed one, and he's going to deal with our enemies. We're under the boot of Rome. He's going to kick out Rome. He's going to bring us into victory. He's going to bring us peace. He's going to reestablish Israel as his nation on earth. Like all of these things are going through Peter's mind. So listen, like uh, recently we introduced our kids to uh, Lord of the Rings, the movies. Uh, Maybe that makes me a terrible parent or a profoundly good parent. You be the judge but we're watching with our three little kids, Lord of the Rings. It's more scary than I remembered it being. Um, And Aragorn, you remember Aragorn? He's a great kind of depiction of of what people were thinking the Messiah would be like. Here's this warrior king. He's gonna come and he's gonna dominate. He's gonna kick Rome out. Here's this temple to Caesar Augustus. But here in a minute, Jesus is gonna bring his full temple. It's gonna be bigger. It's gonna be better. And we will be seated in the halls of power. This is, Jesus's, this is Peter's illumination. And Jesus is about to say, yeah, but. I am the Messiah, but not what you were thinking. So look at what he says, verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. Now, just pause for a minute. If you are Peter, what's happening in your soul? You are freaking out. You're going, no, 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 no. You're the Messiah. Like, you're Aragorn. You're the king. You're the, the, the warrior. You're going to establish power, and you're going to restore Israel. No, no, no. You can't be rejected by the people that are going to inaugurate you as the king. You can't be killed. You can't be persecuted. Like, Peter's freaking out internally. And then Jesus says, and after three days, rise again. Now look at this phrase in verse 32. And he said this plainly. It's the only time in Mark that phrase is used. And up to this point, Jesus has been teaching him like parables and hidden stories and not being very clear at times. And and what he's saying here is, guys, listen, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected by all the people that you are hoping are going to receive me as the king. This is not what Peter thought. So look at what happens. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, which is just a great idea, right? Just a great idea. It's like, it's Jesus. He's your teacher. You know, what does he know? So Peter pulls him aside. And the phrase here for rebuke is the same exact phrase that's used in Mark of how Jesus would cast out the demons. It's where you look at him and you go, no, get out. And this is what Peter is doing with Jesus trying to cast out this crazy thought of being the suffering servant, this Messiah that came to die. Now look at what Jesus does in return. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Same word. (laughs) He rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He, he calls Peter Satan. This is the second thing I want you to see is the blur. So Peter goes from being illuminated, but his vision is still blurry. This is Peter's, I can see, but not clearly. You're a Messiah walking around that looks more like a tree. This is Peter thinking he's getting it right, but deep down he's not really sure who this Messiah actually is. Like, this is a crazy, crazy deal. When, Pete, when Jesus calls Peter Satan, he's not saying that Satan somehow entered Peter. He's saying that he's embodying the satanic temptation that Satan already gave Jesus in the wilderness when he said, hey, don't you want to become king? Well, just bow down to me and I'll give you all the nations of the earth. You don't have to go to the way of suffering. You don't have to go to the cross. Here, take the easy way out and I'll just let you be the person in power. He's inviting Jesus to avoid the cross. And this is the same thing that Peter's trying to do here. Hey, avoid the cross, avoid the way of suffering, avoid the way of rejection. Don't go that way. Take the easy road. Take the way of the world. Don't take the way of God. And Jesus rebukes Peter for it. See, there's this chasm between Peter's expectation of who the Messiah would be and who Jesus actually is. Peter expected this warrior king Messiah, and yet Jesus came as a suffering servant. Peter expected the Messiah to be received with open arms from the Jewish leaders, from the scribes and the Pharisees, and yet those same leaders were the ones that betrayed him, rejected him, and eventually handed him over to be executed. Peter was expecting Jesus to come up, come and just destroy the Roman army and reestablish Israel. Jesus actually came to seek and to save the lost, even the lost of Rome. Like, this is so confusing for Peter Peter expected Jesus to conquer his greatest enemies. And if you were to ask Peter, who's your greatest enemy? Rome. And yet Jesus did come to conquer his greatest enemies and our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. This is just not what Peter thought. Now, I want to make an observation here real quick. This story is in the Bible. Now, that doesn't sound profound. Some of you are like, go back on sabbatical. Um, (laughs) You're dumb. Uh, It's in the Bible. That's profound. Do you know why that's profound? Because yes, John Mark was the author of this gospel according to Mark, but who was the eyewitness person that John Mark is sitting with that history tells us to get all of these details of the story? Peter himself. Can you imagine 20, 20, 30 years later, Peter's sitting with John Mark and he's like, oh, hey, so there's this one time, you gotta put this down. I was with Jesus, and I got it right. And then like three verses later, he called me Satan. Like he included this story. Think about that. And by the way, he included the story with way less kindness than even Matthew records it. Like Matthew records the same story. And in Matthew, Jesus is like, blessed are you, son of, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this is amazing. And I'm going to build my church on you and the gates of hell won't prevail. Peter's like, no, I didn't even record any of that. He's like, yeah, I got it right. Then I got it very, very wrong. And right in front of all my friends, he called me Satan. What? Why would Peter make sure this gets included? There's probably a lot of reasons and a lot of explanations, but here's at least one of them, is because you and I have a tendency to have a Messiah of our own making too. Friends, if Peter can walk with Jesus for three years, hear him preach sermons, watch him do the things, and yet still get it so, so wrong on who Jesus the Messiah really is, don't you think you and I could get it wrong too? 
Don't you think that often we are in danger of cultivating and creating and designing a Messiah, a Jesus, the Christ, after our own liking? A one that just baptizes all of our sexual desires, a one that never tells us no, a one that always lets us be and do whatever it is that we want to be and do, a one that agrees with us at every turn, a one that hates all the same people that we hate. Isn't it true that we could often just create a Messiah that's going to look just like the one that we want to look like? See, what Peter was having going on for him was these factors of like this Jewish social upbringing where he's seeing the world through a specific worldview. There are certain things that he wants to be true, certain things that he wants to not be true. He's also struggling with the bent and brokenness of his own soul. And then in addition to that, there's the misreading of Scripture where there's all these texts about the Messiah, but there's certain ones that are more attractive to Peter and others that are like, I better avoid that. The same is true of you and I that we have, we're brought up in a specific worldview. There's a, a lens with which we see our society and ourselves and our culture and what is right and what is wrong and what it means to be on the right side of history and not on the right side of history and what it means to you know, fill in the blank. So there's this worldview that we have. In addition to that, we've got the brokenness and bent of our own souls that often wants certain things to be true and certain things to not be true. And then there's the misreading of Scripture where whether you grew up in church or not, we, or, or maybe we don't even bother with Scripture at all. It's just like so-and-so said and I believed it. Like all of these factors are at play in us for you and I to create and design and, and kind of put together a DIY Messiah the way that we want it to be. And what's so bizarre is we're crossing the line of faith. You are the Christ. But it might be this very different version of the Christ of Scripture, right? So where do we go from here? I actually want to land the plane with just two simple applications, I think, from this story before we get into the second half of the story next week and what it means for you and I. Here's the first thing. I want to invite you to be honest about where your conception of Jesus is coming from. Where is your conception of Jesus coming from? Is it coming from what Western culture says? Is it coming from your own internal bent, disordered desires? Is it coming from a podcast or a blog, if that's still a thing that people do, or a book, you know, where it's like they made a compelling argument and I believed it? Is it coming from what you heard growing up in Sunday school? Is it coming from what you've just over time pieced together from what you think is true or what you hope to be true or what you want to be? Or is your vision of this Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah coming from the word of God based on solid church tradition and teaching worked out in the context of Christian community where you're saying, as much as I know, historically, this is what the church has always said and believed about Jesus, the Christ. Where is it coming from? And if you don't know where to start, I just want to invite you, like, start with the gospel of Mark. Just read it and say, is this man the man that I follow? Is this man and his beliefs and what he says and what, is that shaping how I live? Is, is that shaping who I want to become as a human and how I see the good life in this world? Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Come to grips with this because this is in me and this is in you, and we need the slow, formative, corrective work of of the whole of Scripture and the Gospel of Mark to reframe and give us the true Jesus, the Christ. Here's the second and final thing. Be prepared. This is my warning to you. Be prepared for the implications of a Jesus 
who came to suffer and die and not just knock on the halls of power and say, scoot over, you're in my chair. Be prepared that we serve a God of the cross and what that means for how you and I live. Timothy Gombos says this in his commentary, the most important thing about the gospel in Mark is that the kingdom of God takes the shape of a cross, is ruled by a Christ who goes to the cross and is constituted by a people whose corporate life is oriented by the cross. This has dramatic implications and we're gonna see it next week. Peter is saying, Jesus, you are the Christ. And do you know what he's thinking? In a few days, in a few months, in a few years, I'm gonna be seated in the halls of power next to the Messiah. Do you know what actually happened to Peter? In a few years, he's facing the halls of power and they're crucifying him for his statement, Jesus is the Christ. How crazy is that? It did not lead to the type of life he thought. It actually led to his suffering and death, but his eventual resurrection. And friends, this is the whole point. If you and I are gonna follow the Jesus of the cross, then you have to understand that it is a countercultural way of life that is not going after the way of the world, that is not going after the way of ease, that is not taking the easy path, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's taking the hard road. And he's gonna tell us next week, if you wanna be my disciples, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and then you can come and follow after me. This has implications for how we live. It shaped the way the early church lives and it'll shape the way we live today.